0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to this cellular medicine podcast. Dr. Seeds, we are kicking off 2023 in such a strong way because number one, we did a little rebranding of our old sex drugs and the epigenome, which did really, really well for the first two years. But we've always kind of talked about these cellular medicine topics that went beyond just those three things. That again, those are big topics, but This is a little more descriptive, wouldn't you say, Doc? Agreed. (laughs) And that is what we're going to stick to for the foreseeable future. Folks, we are back in 2023 with a bang. We apologize for being offline for a a couple of months or two, but Dr. Seeds is back in full swing and starting strong. In fact... He will be speaking at the Integrative Healthcare Symposium on Saturday, February 25th, in New York, and he's giving an advanced course because he has quickly become the top researcher both in clinical and in medical journals when it comes to GLP-1 agonists and how it is the future of metabolic, autoimmune and cardiovascular disease care. So Doc's already starting this year, super strong. He will also be leading the SSRP faculty and the experts in the field on IV nutrition therapy. And this is a certification for practitioners taking place next month. Actually in, oh my gosh, Doc, it's it's in one week. So my practitioners listening, if you haven't signed up for this, we do still have spaces for you to join virtually. It's going to be a packed two day filled with all the things that we see people doing right. And most importantly, what we see doing wrong. And some of those wrongs are heinous. And oh, gosh, just a misdosing, um, they're u- they're not utilizing proper sterility techniques and practices and all kinds of things that we thought came with the business and what we quickly realized has never been really trained on and solidified. So, Doc has set that benchmark. Nothing lower than that benchmark should ever be accepted, and this course is identifying just that. Right, Doc?
1: Correct.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) Awesome. So that's happening next week. uh, It's happening on a Tuesday and a Wednesday, February 14th through the 15th in His Heaven on Earth, Vail, Colorado, if you're joining us there. But otherwise, we'll be online on those two days with a live stream. So make sure if you're a practitioner that you sign up. And if you have any questions on how you can sign up, simply email the SSRP Institute. Their email address is info at ssrpinstitute.org. And folks, that's basically how Dr. Seeds is going to start out this year in a little bit of a nutshell. We want to kick off this very first podcast of 2023 with one of my favorite topics, and that is the debunking of myths or just a re-education on some of these things that people are telling each other, specifically on TikTok and Instagram and other news sources. But I've compiled all the crazy things that I've seen people just uh, spread through social media, not just that, but articles that I've read and have have been annoyingly sending to Dr. Seeds and asking if this is real. And so we've compiled all these things together in this episode. So Dr. Seeds reacts to The craziest or the worst health trends of 2023 and responding to some of those things from last year so that we're not fooled anymore moving forward with our health. So we have nothing, by the way, against biohackers and people that are taking the initiative and having the active interest in their health that is a very good thing. But Dr. Seeds is all about the education and wants to make sure that you're spreading it correctly. So here we go, everyone. Doc, you ready?
1: I'm ready, Karen, let's okay. do it.
0: <laughs> okay, so this first one made me gasp. And I think it's because it's wrong. And I wanna hope that it's wrong because otherwise we've got some a, a lot of changes to make this year. But the first one is that coffee in the morning on an empty stomach is a hormone disruptor. That's the claim that I heard.
1: Whoa. Well, I think it's just relative. It always comes back to, let's look at a couple of things. I mean, I drink coffee in the morning. I like it. And I also do, as you know, I do talks on coffee and caffeine and the beneficial effects of caffeine on um, basically on health. And I think first and foremost, it's all about the amount of caffeine. And I think that's getting harder to determine now with all these specialty coffees that are coming out and more stronger, you know, uh, bigger cups of coffee, which may push this to the fact of where caffeine can be uh, potentially an endocrine disruptor, but You know, I think if you stick around the three to four cups of coffee, that's typically around three, 400 milligrams of caffeine in a day, usually that's, I mean, there hasn't been anything that has shown, they've actually looked at cortisol responses based on that amount of caffeine, and it really hasn't shown to have a significant effect in disrupting a significant, you know, causing a significant increase in cortisol. It causes a little bit more increase in in cortisol in the morning, which is what you want, by the way. You want more cortisol release, but it it really hasn't. It, they haven't really shown that at all that that has any significant down trodden effects on on health. But when you get into the higher doses, potentially you can cause you know, more issues. And and that, and that absolutely makes sense. But, you know, I think as far as caffeine and its ability to increase cortisol and ATCH release, its increase in dopamine for the brain. I mean, that's what you want in the morning, right? I, I'm looking for it. I think all those things are important. And in fact, caffeine is great as a pre-workout type of a substrate because of what it does to improve or increase some glucocorticoids, but catecholamine responses that I want a little bit of before I work out. And those have been shown to be beneficial. So, I mean, the only times really where caffeine can be tough are when there are increases in stress. So if your cortisol curve is up significantly in the morning, well, then maybe you want to stay away from coffee. Um, If you're in high stress situations, Sometimes it's, you know, caffeine can be a negative to that, but as far as taking it on an empty stomach as a hormone disruptor, that that's, that's not true. In fact, if we want to look at, if you want to go further, it's true depending on the level of caffeine, I guess we should say. So between 300, 400 milligrams, three or four cups of coffee, I think, I think you're okay. Above that, then you have the potential of of causing problems with your cortisol and ADCH release. Um, But let's talk more about cancer, you you know, the potential, the the aspects of how caffeine has been shown to have an inverse relationship to hepatocellular cancer and actually breast cancer in postmenopausal women. So there's been and continues to be a tremendous amount of research, you know, on, on, um, caffeine in particular from coffee and its its potentials in reducing cancer risk so and and that's because of the uh the polyphenols that are the antioxidants that are in in coffee and also the what i talk about in some of my talks is the cholerogenic acids that i think are significant and has other anti-inflammatory agents and we talk about cafestol and There's some other agents that I think are are really worth noting, but that means you got to come to my coffee talk next time you hear I'm putting that on, because I think it's tremendous in all the aspects of health. We've got a lot of good meta-analysis and data showing how it improves insulin resistance, uh, glucose sensitivity decrease cardiovascular events. I mean, across the board, it's really interesting when you start looking at the benefits of coffee, but I think it's all related to the amount of consumption. So that only makes sense, right? Too much of something that's good can be bad. And a little bit of something like that can be good. So I think that's probably a good way to look at it.
0: Awesome. So it's not the end of the world to start your day on an empty stomach with a cup of coffee.
1: Not at all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: And my rule of thumb is always, and one of your patients said this too, which is so funny because we say the same thing is, what would Dr. Seeds do? If Dr. Seeds does it, then it's probably good. <laughs> That's oh. my barometer for how long. <laughs> they lick the...
1: I mean, they oh. even looked They even looked at caffeine. They looked at coffee and the potential of caffeine of blunting cortisol responses over time um, because of the of the feedback of of how coffee can stimulate too much of cortisol too much of atch and have a negative effect on the adrenal glands releasing cortisol and it showed that in these in the doses i described it it really didn't affect that and in fact it it had it elevated the response a little bit so it always comes back to like i said it's just being it's being uh cognizant of how much and, and, but I do think these new specialty coffees where they try to make them higher in caffeine content, I think you do have to pay attention to that. Um, and again, the other, the big point is people that are in higher stressed environments where they may already be, have higher cortisol levels or higher ATCH release, you might want to be a little careful on the dosing there also, but it just depends on the individual. But as far as a pre-workout drink, I think it's a fantastic pre-workout drink also. I think it beats, I actually think it beats any pre-workout drink that's out, that is beneficial to the body.
0: I've heard you say that before. Like most of those pre-workouts are a little bogus, not in those, those high words, but you were a lot more diplomatic about it.
1: (laughs) We should do that someday is go, I think that would be a great topic. People would love to hear about that. And
0: absolutely,
1: but it's the same thing. If you're taking too much coffee, you're going to have too much sympathetic response from the, from the increase of uh, the caffeine. And that could be bad. So again, it's not, it's just enough, like a cup of coffee before your workout or a half a cup or a cup and a half. I mean, I'm not talking about large amounts. I'm talking about just enough to stimulate and help. You know what you're trying to accomplish with the workout, which is a whole nother topic.
0: Well, there you have it, folks. Dr. Seed says it's okay, so it gets a thumbs up. All right. Next big claim. Cholesterol is bad for you. Saturated fats are bad for you, and avoid it at all costs.
1: Mm, boy, this is a this is always a tough discussion with your patients. Um, and I think this is where I really think this is where cellular medicine is making huge advances in informing the public, but also in in further education for us as physicians in learning more about the function of these phospholipids and fatty acids and cholesterol and their importance in cell membranes in particular. But getting back to this question, cholesterol is not bad for you cholesterol is good we need cholesterol the saturated fats we need i mean we we just did a whole topic on pentanoic denoic acid the 15 chain odd chain fatty acid uh 15 and 17 are are almost like they need to be essential fatty acids that we can't do without and in fact that 15 chain um fatty acid that is a odd chain fatty acid saturated, um, has been shown to be, it's, it looks like it's potentially more effective than, uh, omega-3 fatty acids that everybody's crazed over. And, you know, there are issues with that, but cholesterol is good. I mean, you're, you can't, I don't think you can define by eating cholesterol. I think number one, we can't say that if we eat too much cholesterol on our diet we're going to be increasing cholesterol in what we in the blood system basically your liver is what makes cholesterol and cholesterol and you know these other fats are carried around the body by these lipoproteins and that's why we look at these low density lipoproteins and these high density lipoproteins and it's how we make decisions on is cholesterol, you know, how is cholesterol being used? And the significance there is that it's the liver that makes the cholesterol. And the dietary intake, what's really interesting is you do get, so some people do make the claim that, well, wait a second, there are people that are, they're called higher responders. Um, If they take too much cholesterol, they can increase, their cholesterol that they're producing. And there is a hereditary, there is, there actually is a hereditary um, contribution to that. But what people don't understand is that you also increase the proportion of, of the lipoproteins, the uh, HDLs and LDL. So you kind of, even though you're increasing the cholesterol, you're increasing the amount of hdl's that actually bring cholesterol back to the liver and and that is that lowers your risk of of the cholesterol problems so i think that's something that people don't re, don't really realize that because it, even though you may have a diet you know a, a small increase in ldl's from increase in cholesterol, you're going to get the increase in the HDLs that are going to offset that. And that that's how your body works. Your body makes these HDLs to offset the LDLs. And that gets a little more complicated, but that ratio of LDL to HDL is really important in when you're looking at dietary cholesterol increases. And and so that, and, and that's been shown that um, the risk of heart disease does not go up in those patients. They've, I mean that that's been something that's been proven. So, I think that helps. And and they've, you know, we've in, in our cellular medicine um, courses, we do go into significant detail. And we've even have uh, Dan now, you know, who's a big proponent of understanding phospholipids and cholesterol, and and he he's really done a good job in bringing to bringing to attention this. Issue of the uh, all cause mortality with keeping uh, cholesterol at a certain level, you know, from like the two hundred to two hundred and twenty five, or I'm I'm just using some numbers here, but in that range of showing that all cause mortality that people survive longer, there's less heart disease, there's less there are less problems when cholesterol is kept at a at a a higher level than what we've been taught in the past. And there's actually too low of a cholesterol and then there's too high. And those have been, there have been multiple studies to, uh, to back that up um, and show that if cholesterol is too low, you increase the risk of heart disease and death. And if it's too high, you increase it. So there is a number in between there. And that's where I get worried when I see people on a lot of these, statins and things where where they get them too they get their cholesterol levels too low and their triglycerides get too low and that's a problem that's a significant problem that you can actually see where there's another correlation you can look at which I think is is really relevant in looking at because it goes to the next phase of bile acid synthesis and how bile acids uh, play a real important role in uh as antioxidants. And I just think that we just don't understand enough or spend enough time, you know, uh, learning about why these in particular uh, cholesterol is relevant. And I got, I got off topic with the bile acids has got me on somewhat something else, but I think for the most part, a lot of people are coming around to understanding that the importance of cholesterol is significant in just cellular membrane, in lipid rafts, in, in cellular receptors, and in, in how we discuss so much about signaling between cells and the importance of cholesterol in the cell membrane. And, and for that lipid raft, which is important, where it holds the lipid raft in the cell membrane, it holds these receptors. And if there's not enough cholesterol there, you're going to have issues with fluidity of the membrane. And that's significant with these receptors. And that's what, that's what we spend a lot of time with. So in understanding these mechanisms. So again, I I think we just, there's just been just too much of an overemphasis on cholesterol and not understanding the mechanisms of how important cholesterol is. And I think, I mean, I, I kind of hit a lot there, but the significance of cholesterol is so underestimated, and I we spend a lot of time with our patients discussing this and and trying to get um, I, I think it people a better understanding of not going too low and of course not going too high um, these uh, in looking for serum levels uh, of cholesterol. Mm-hmm.
0: And that seems to be an underlying theme in your approach to all parts of the body, Doc, is I, I hear you talking about many ratios. It's that happy balance between one side and the other, right? The NAD, NADPH, blah, 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 right? The, <laughs> but this is another thing that you're mentioning is this balance between the HDL and LDL. So that's pretty key. And I hear you saying all the time the cholesterol is very important for the cell.
1: Well, there's just so much more to it than just a cholesterol level. I mean, it's just once It's a, it's a component that we look at. But I think there's way too much focus on getting that number too low, and I think I just think more people need to be aware of the historical data and the empirical data that's out there now in outside of the U.S. and other countries that have been looking at this to show that. Hey, we need to rethink this when we look at, just look at all cause mortality, just death, that people do better in this framework of, you know, 200 to say 230 of cholesterol. So, I mean, that's a that's not, you know, cholesterol above 200 is, is what I'm looking for with all of my patients, but I'm also looking at everything else, right? I'm looking at higher HDLs. I'm looking at lower LDLs. I'm looking at triglycerides, not too low, but triglycerides below 100. And if they're too low, then, you know, we get worried about too much fasting and not enough fatty acids around, things like that. But it's all relative to just understanding that this, um, I I guess I went into it, but I, I really should, you know, cholesterol is is converted into bile salts. And and if we don't, the the significance that I think is way underestimated here, and let me just do it because I talked about it before. So let's really make a good point out of this. Cholesterol is converted into these bile salts. Well, bile salts are are necessary and very important in emulsifying and doing the things that are needed to Make secondary metabolites available from uh, that are involved with the microbiome, involved in bilirubin and biliverdin production that are significant anti inflammatories or antioxidants. And I say that because you will, if you spend enough time looking at this and you look at people with very low cholesterol levels, they have really, uh, m- for the most part, they have this, they're in the smaller quartile of the bilirubin production. And bilirubin is a very important antioxidant that is involved in insulin sensitivity, glucose tolerance, things that people don't understand. If you're, if you're not familiar with the molecular mechanisms of of the cell and these influences of things like bile acids and the um bilirubin eventual production bilirubin you're losing the understanding of why the liver goes through this process of taking cholesterol and producing this because it can respond as an antioxidant and control oxidative aspects of of disease and we spend time talking about that significantly uh you know in 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 relevance to diabetes and um, non-alcoholic fatty disease and cardiovascular disease understanding those mechanisms so cholesterol has significant effects in cellular metabolism and and cell redox so i went off tangent but i just thought since we're talking about cholesterol and it's not really you won't find a lot of what I just talked about. You have to understand the mechanisms of what happens with cholesterol and how it's converted and um, into bile and, and why bile is so important and bile acids are so important as in what they do in combination with what the microbiome does with those bile acids to make secondary metabolites, but also to make uh bilirubin and so forth. So I know that's a lot, but i think thought i'd just perk up everybody's uh
0: i love their... it i thought we needed that because i think everyone is with me when when i say that we've always been under the understanding that all cholesterol is bad so this is well,
1: it's, 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 it's so important I, it's so important because these bile acids they inhibit they inhibit the peroxidation of polyunsaturated lipids and linolytic acids and these other proteins that we're all about controlling like, you know, people take tons of supplements to try to offset some of these things when your body does these things to offset these things. So it's, it's an antioxidant activity that's scavenging these radical, these perioxal radicals. And it's, it's that, it's really important to understand that in, in lipid metabolism, you you need to know that and you need cholesterol for that. And so all of these it's why you see people getting into problems. Uh, the, the problems get even more significant if we start looking at, at molecular mechanisms with how we let, for how long you let people get to these lower levels and when they think they're healthy and actually they're, they're losing those reducing species of Billy Verd and Billy Rubin. And because they're significant antioxidants that we need and that, that we respond We use in response to what's happening in the body it's the way the body responds to oxidation and so if we lose that we're losing significant control of redox and and hence i I think those are further mechanisms that really no one spent a lot of time discussing yeah well
0: thank you for doing that doc this is Pretty eye opening, I would say. <laughs> uh, so, thank you for going through that. And uh, bile is very good. Bile salts are very important. Doc.
1: You know, the, the other part that people don't realize is, you know, when if you're eating a lot of cholesterol, you can, if you're worried about being one of those higher responders and you're not buying into the levels of, you know, that, that eating more cholesterol, you're making more cholesterol. Well, If you're eating more fiber, that fiber prevents you from absorbing that type of cholesterol, you know, the cholesterol that can be difficult for you. So that's why balanced diets can offset this also in having high fiber diets with the things that are higher in cholesterol, like the egg yolks and the dairy products and the milk, the organ meats and things like that, that have, you know, animal origin type of foods that have um, higher cholesterol. Well, it, we what do we talk about in Southern medicine? We talk about nutrition that's balanced with high fiber and good fats and good protein. It, it just come it always comes back to that. And so th- that could help people maybe feel a little bit better about that if they're if they're trying to if they're eating diets high in you know organ meats or animal fats that have higher, they're worried about higher cholesterol. Just make sure you eat your fiber and you're, you're fine.
0: That's a fantastic tip doc. Thank you for that. All I'm right. <laughs> this next one is a little bit of a doozy because I'm sure there's some truth to it, but you were talking about this and I saw it come up in my feed, but you're talking about why some of this is so Oh gosh, it's, it's, it's so shocking, but we know that fish oil is important for everyday brain health. And, but in your last mastermind, you had said about 90% of the fish oil on the market is completely useless to you. And you went into a whole explanation as to why I think everyone needs to hear about that. Oh boy. Yeah. So take your fish oil every day for brain health is one of the claims
1: well, uh, how do I say, well, you, in your omega-3s, your fish oils, there's the DHA and there is the EPA. And those are basically your two omega-3s that we're focused on. The, the DHA is more specific to the brain and uh, as far as growth and development, as we know it in as we grow we know that dha is so significant and required you know for development of the brain in infants but it's also required for maintenance of normal function in adults so dha is a very important um it's an important omega 3 for the brain the problem i have is in in the the way it's becoming more apparent is that these fish oils are because of the, how they are, um, how they're made and how long they sit, they become, it looks like more of these become oxidized. And when you take an oxidized DHA molecule that produces more problems for you and it, it, it actually causes bad things to happen. And that's why we advise, you know, that's why I was telling all the, the docs out there is to make sure if you're supplementing any kind of DHA or fish oil, the I think the smartest thing you can do into in trying to stop the problems with oxidized fish oils, which I do think is a problem, and we can certainly have the debate, that you take taurine, and taurine with the omega-3s if you're doing that can offset that oxidized fat but that's kind of why we get into the discussion about other essential potential unsaturated fatty acids like the the pentadenoic acid that i that i really really like and how i think that has even more significant effects than the dha on on development of, of the brain and in, in infants and in adults and how important I think that can be, if you're really going to focus on fatty acids, uh, that that should be the focus. And that's why we spent so much time on it. Um, I think there are problems with people trying to make these synthetic type of DHAs just by how they try to make them. They're not coming from fish oils themselves, but they're extracted from like algae or funguses, and they use hexane or um, a chemical that potentially, I think, can alter that uh, DHA uh, again. And I think it all just comes back to this oxidized DHA really, but, you know, the importance of, of the DHA is really in its mechanism. And, and that's where you're, we spend the time, you know, in cellular medicine talking about how it affects the, the peroxisomal proliferator activator receptors, the PPRs and significant in the brain it's all about the PPARs alphas and how it regulates the oxidative stress and the mitochondrial fatty acid metabolism that we spend so much time on and how that influences the uh the glutamine neurotransmission and and that has everything to do with you know cholinergic dopaminergic signaling and that's essentially the brain right and so that's why this is so important to understand if we're using an oxidized molecule of this DHAA, we' we're, we're not we're not doing justice at all to what we're trying to accomplish. So I think that's the biggest thing um, that we need to be focused on. and and there's a significant amount of literature now supporting what I'm what I'm discussing here and and I think we really we got to pay more attention to it. That's what I think you're referring to what I brought up. And of course I went into much more significant detail about the mechanisms, but I think for just for the general public, you know, that it's just important to understand that all these fish oils, in fact, I tell people that even have them, I tell them to refrigerate them if they get them, keep them out of the sunlight or or light, you know, get, check your sources. But I have everybody, I, I try to tell them to take Taurine with them to help reduce that oxidation.
0: Very cool. It's like chemistry uh, in the form of supplements. <laughs> like it, I like it. Thanks for that, doc. Oxidized molecules. Okay, this one is this one. I think you'll like. We're getting into some fun topics because you love to go to the gym, doc. <laughs> the best weight loss exercise is cardio. This is a claim. And we've talked about this in many other episodes, but it's worth repeating. So, Doc, is the best weight loss exercise cardio?
1: Wow. I guess it's so that's a loaded question is what are you going to define as cardio? And I mean, if people consider walking as cardio, I would say, walking or a brisk walk can, is probably your best weight loss exercise you can do. And everybody has looked at me and say, what are you talking about? And it all comes back to, again, understanding these mechanisms of the cell and and, and their utilization of oxygen, glucose, and fatty acids. And, and basically, I think you know what we discuss in cellular medicine is understanding what's the aerobic threshold. You know, it's the point of where you have aerobic energy, the anaerobic energy starting to contribute more to the total energy production. What's that mean? That means that as I'm increasing activity, let's say I start walking. I go out and I start walking. What is my body utilizing as its primary energy source at that time? Well, it's actually utilizing fat. It's usually utilizing fat and fat oxidation. As I increase the demands, let's say I start speeding up my walking and maybe into more brisk or even a run. Well, at some point, I'm not going to be able to produce the amount of energy needed for the cell by just fat. And I'm going to have to contribute glucose. Well, glucose through glycolysis is going to give us that quicker energy and it's going to it's going to change that curve so that now I'm not using just fat I'm using glucose that's potentially from the liver and I'm going to deplete uh glycogen and, and so forth to meet those needs until I hit my anaerobic threshold um but the idea here is, that there's a crossover of where you're utilizing fat as your primary source of energy. And when you start to kick it in a little too much, you're going to need glucose. Once that happens, you start not using your fat reserves. And that's where I think we lose this understanding of how powerful walking can be or finding out what your aerobic threshold is. And That's really a point of, it's all about lactate clearance and, and how you can't keep up with that accumulation and so forth. But that gets into more, more information, but I think people need to understand that. So where am I going to get more weight loss? Like if I say, if I took somebody and I had them walk 45 minutes a day versus out running or doing like high intensity work, are they going to lose weight? Well, yeah, doing high intensity, they'll lose some weight, Do run a, 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 a running program, they're definitely going to lose weight, but where are they going to get most effective fat loss? It's going to be a walking program. And you can get into the arguments about what you can do with like high intensity training, interval training can do things to improve muscle fiber changes. Um, with more mitochondria that then can increase that, that aerobic threshold, meaning I'll go longer before I reach, before I have to use glucose, and then they'll even do better in a walking program. So you can do things to maximize walking programs, which is really fascinating and how you can combine like HIT work with a walking program and really do some amazing things in helping people understand how they can lose weight. I don't know. Did I get off the topic or did I answer? Was I?
0: You totally stayed on topic doc and went into massive detail as to why. But you said if you consider walking cardio, which I didn't, I just thought, okay, cardio is running and I hate running and this is false. That's me. (laughs) But you're saying if you're considering walking cardio, which I think I guess it is, that is the best way to lose weight.
1: Well, absolutely. On a daily basis, it's part of the program. I mean, it's not just one thing, remember, but if you want to utilize If you want to reach that, if you get to, if you stay below that aerobic threshold I discussed, you're going to be able to just be utilizing fat. And, you know, you can do a, you can do an HIT work to increase your anaerobic threshold. That's your work done basically at a sub maximal aerobic threshold. You, you'll, you, you lose weight that way. But, you got to know how to combine these things to take advantage of both of them. And I think the most effective, if you're not, if you're not getting sophisticated and you're not going to get really go at this through looking at cellular mechanisms and so forth, it's very easy. A good walking program over time is going to be the most effective uh, thing you can do consistently losing weight because your body is just, is demanding just that fat, as its primary energy source, and it's okay. not going to be utilizing glucose. And
0: that's really great, especially if you're keeping up with any weight loss resolutions that you've made in the beginning of the year, and you're not a big gym person like me, hate working out, love walking, especially shopping. So you <laughs> can hit two birds with one stone, people. This is a good thing. All right. Next question, Doc, you ready for this one? I
1: don't know. You've hit me. i I this one, I think you're gonna. I
0: think you're gonna love this one.
1: Oh boy!
0: I saved it for second or third to last because they get better and better as we go. Okay, okay. this one was from an influencer who said lifting weights raises cortisol, so do Pilates only. <laughs> Sorry, I laughed because yeah, it's I don't even know why I'm laughing. It just sounds very, very odd to say that um, lifting weights is a bad thing.
1: Wow. Well, okay. Yeah. So that's just not, you know, again, um, number one, you you know, uh, resistance exercise is all about improving muscle adaption and uh, you need cortisol. You need, you need things like that to induce change and adapt uh, adaption of muscle. um, And gosh I we could get into a diatribe on this, but it, it, it's it's how you can build muscle that produces all these myokines and exokines and peptides that are so important as metabolites to healthy living. And I'm just going to tell you that I'm going to tell you also that Pilates induces cortisol release also, all right? It's all, it, it gets into intracellular cortisol. And so any type of exercise is going to induce some cortisol response. And you need that cortisol response for muscle adaption, or else you're not going to get anywhere. And I think, I think that's very, let's just make that simple and not get to digress into a million different pathways with this as we could, because you need it. I mean, you need that process to stimulate change in muscle to adapt to resistance or adapt to what you're doing it with your Pilates, which is also a combination of resistance to some degree and muscle stretch, which by the way, uh, releases uh, signaling agents that will reduce the amount of um, myostatin release that as we age, we need to inhibit myostatin so that we can continue to keep muscle because muscle is so important as we age. And it's incredible that if you really start looking at all these things, how just like a stretching exercise program can maintain muscle mass, just stretching, which people aren't aware of, but it's why yoga and all these things are so great because they can maintain muscle mass on people that aren't trying to build muscle. But if you want to maintain it, it's fantastic. So there's lots of these things you can incorporate to make, make sense of what's good for what you're looking for. Right. But I'm a big proponent of muscle just because, you know, it, just because of insulin signaling and utilization of, of substrates like glucose are so important because that's what controls a lot of redox in the body. <laughs>
0: I feel like the um, theme of today's episode is cortisol is not all bad. (laughs) It seems to get a really bad rap. People tend to attack cortisol and call it a bad thing, but you said it now twice on two separate topics about how cortisol is important at certain times of the day. You mentioned in the morning in our first question.
1: Well, absolutely. And it's why we could get into this over-supplemented world and mm-hmm. and how people just take way, way too many supplements and yes. actually
0: i love that over supplemented world yeah
1: and how you you want to talk about killing your cortisol response well there you go and yeah it's all about again keeping that it's all about redox right we 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 say it over and over and over you know a little bit of antioxidants good too much of it's bad and guess what? The body does most of this stuff. So if you're working on all the right things in the body, like exercise and good nutrition, you're doing it, you're way ahead of the game. But yeah, that's why we spend so much time talking about, you know, even though we, we absolutely support good supplement use when it's necessary and when it's needed and, and the ones that are effective, but to constantly be doing, to be using antioxidants is just, it's in, it's irresponsible and it's, um, it's inappropriate and it leads to poor health. And that's a fact.
0: That's so,
1: yeah, yeah. It's just so it's, it's incredible. How- it's weird that
0: we got to this topic, dog, because that is actually your next book coming out this year is your favorite supplements. Why they are your favorite supplements, how they work and how to use them
1: well it it's this it came as an offshoot i think from we saw this incredible push of docs trying to do all the right things and good things of just over supplementing uh, not just docs but patients and and not understanding well why are you using these what is the specificity of what this supplement does and do you really need to continue to work on reducing oxidation where we need oxidation I mean, oxidation is all about oxidative phosphorylation of the mitochondria. We need it. It now it's understanding how those mechanisms that are important in making ATP and NAD, right. Understanding that overall focus and not making it worse. And that's, you know that comes to the classic people taking antioxidants in tr- and not in sports and and seeing their decrease in performance, their loss of muscle mass, their more fatigue. Well, of course, because your your muscle and body adapt to training. You need they need that stimulus to adapt. They need those inflammatory mediators. They need those reactive oxygen species because the cell. Guess what? It can adapt. It can change. So that it can be better next time it comes back as it rebuilds. Well, if you're using all these and your body knows how much antioxidant it needs to kind of keep that under control. And that's why it's all called recovery and after exercise and so forth. But if you're using antioxidants while you're doing that, you're dampening the response. And so the cell doesn't know how to adapt. And so it never changes. And and hence, you just keep wearing your body down, and you keep you forcing that oxidative phosphorylation to actually the proton motive force that pushes through the mitochondria goes backwards, and then you have all those signaling problems that occur, and it's crazy. But yeah, I mean, gosh, we we spend a lot of time on that in the beginning of our masterminds, um, you know, just making that irrelevant issue that many, 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 many people just don't understand. And and that's where you you get into so many problems. You know, how many people have we seen that come to us with these lists of crazy lists of antioxidants that they're on. It's it's insane.
0: I don't even know how they take it all down.
1: Well, well so one one how my I I think one of my favorite things in working with people is as they get to work with us and they trust in what we're, we're talking about and discussing, because we just don't go right at it. I don't take things away from people right away, but how many people when we just clean the slate and take all those things away, how many times have you heard? Oh, I feel so much better. How many, <laughs> how, how many, how many times have you heard every time, every time. So what I'm saying is there's a place there's always a place for these it's just utilizing them at the right time but and not having people on these things forever and that's more specific to antioxidants um we can talk about other ones but it always seems to be in that category right
0: Absolutely. Now that one, we got a little bit off talking and it sounds like I hit a nerve with Doc because I love it because he gets so animated talking about (laughs) the over-oxidation of the cellular mechanisms. I love it. But yeah, he. so just to recap, lifting weights it maybe it does raise cortisol and that is not a bad thing. He also said pilates also raises cortisol which is also not a bad thing. So exercise in general all good things for certain things and we shouldn't really say that lifting weights raises cortisol so it's bad.
1: No. No, no, no. no. <laughs>
0: of course not. Awesome. All right, this next one doc is one that I wasn't sure which way you were going to go, because it was kind of new to me too. I've never heard you talk about this in the past. Um, And specifically this claim was on cooking with aluminum and specifically the aluminum foil when you're using it to like barbecue or bake or things of that nature. But this said aluminum causes cancer. So don't use aluminum foil when you are high cook baking or things of that nature. Don't do that which i do all the time. so doc any truth to that?
1: hmm well so i haven't seen that literature of aluminum causing cancer uh in specifically through cooking or you know aluminum foil or anything like that. i mean i'm sure your your body there's going to be some you know there's going to be some amount of aluminum that gets absorbed, but it's not significant in any of it or most of it gets eliminated by your kidneys anyways. And so I, I just haven't seen any of that data at all, that there is any, high, there. there's this high risk of, of aluminum that can have a, a significant effect on, on, can, on cancer. Is it potentially, can it be linked to neurodegenerative issues, you know, dementia, things like that? Um, yeah, there's some possibilities there, but again, it has to be, you know, I, it would be if you have impaired it's like all these toxins we're exposed to. Mm. That's why you have a liver. It's why you have a kidney. It's why you have the, the lungs. I mean, the, the, the kidney is what excretes a lot of these toxins like aluminum and yeah, I, I mean, at least from the, at least from the cancer data, I haven't seen that, but it can be linked more to the potential, the possibilities. If you have renal problems with clearance, right? If you've got renal insufficiencies, then you're going to see more issues with heavy metals and, you know, issues like potentially in dementia, things like that. So I could see that happening, you know, in older people that have impaired kidney function, you can, you can see some higher uh, levels of, uh, aluminum, which is noted. I think when, you know, people go through, uh, dialysis, they do have higher, uh, dietary aluminum levels because of, um, impaired renal function. So that's how I look at it going backwards. I think that's very helpful.
0: Very good. Well, we can continue to barbecue with our aluminum. (laughs) Thank you, kidneys. Appreciate it. All the hard work you do. (laughs) Doc, last topic. Do you ever thank your body parts, Doc? I have a question about that. (laughs) (laughs) Do you ever thank your kidneys for for, uh, detoxing appropriately? Which leads us to our next topic, Doc, which Uh is a word that you have... You have behind behind the scenes, you've not quite liked, but I think it's worth, so worth hearing, people hearing your stance on the word detox, because that's everywhere, on every single 2023 resolution thing was how we're going to detox 2022. And whether it's metaphorical or whether it's health-wise, I'm specifically talking about how you're detoxing health-wise in the body. Uh, and i want to start this topic off doc with a with a quote that i found from um another another scientist who said the the who who totally is along your way of thinking by the way um the healthy body has kidneys a liver skin even lungs that are detoxifying as we speak there is no known way certainly not through detox treatments to make something that works perfectly well in a healthy body Work better.
1: I couldn't have said that any better. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's so true. This all this detoxification is such bullshit. I don't know how to address it. Uh, look, I think everybody's trying to do to make contributions to improving. Again, it it comes down to, you know, at the cellular level, we talk about redox, and redox is all about. If you want to call detoxification, it's about making cells more efficient to handle toxins. So organs like the kidney and the liver, they, redo, they remove these endotoxins that are made in the body, right? And the skin it protects you from the exotoxins. But, you know, things can get in um, to the body through the environment or you can, we can have problems with converting, you know, where the liver, so your liver is your biggest primary filtration system, right? It converts toxins into waste products and it cleans your, your uh, blood basically. And, and it helps in metabolizing nutrients, right? But it's really, it's a filter. The liver is a filter of toxins through these, Sinusoidal tracts in the liver. They're lined with immune cells that are called those cuffer cells. Well, those are like macrophages. They engulf these toxins as they come through the liver and then they excrete it. And that's what we talk about in uh, you know in, in cellular medicine, about what's really happening. And so the liver can basically like pac Man, these these Kuffer cells that are lying these are immune cells it's why the immune system is so important in control of filtration that these chemicals which are you know the body isn't familiar with it just knows how to go after all of these and and then remove them and they're usually excreted into the uh, by the liver into the bile right and the bile then Enters the intestines and then it leaves the body as basically stool. But the bile, remember what I talked about before, bile is very important as an antioxidant, also. So there's lots of issues there in 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 understanding how important the liver is. And you know, the only way that I think we look at the if we look at the word detoxification, we we kind of look at really their what's happening in what happens to this toxin. And we have these phase one and phase two processes of liver detoxification ones by where we add oxygen to form a, a reactive, it causes a reactive site on the toxic compound and it's then it can conjugate with water, it it can be uh, water soluble. And so we understanding those two mechanisms is actually how the liver processes these toxins. And so the liver is very, very important in that fashion. And then we can get into the kidney and how it filtrates also. But we have these organs that are the keys to detoxification. And The, so the emphasis then is, well, what what are we doing to work on the cellular mechanisms, not just in the liver, but in the kidney that are important in making sure that we are able to handle these toxins. And you've heard us, you know, as you've seen, Karen, we just had a patient tonight, right? We've been working on for two years, right? That had significant metal, uh, metal issues and some other issues of where, It took us a long time to work through improving the toxic effects of some heavy metals this person had been exposed to and so forth. But it's understanding you've got to work on the cellular mechanisms of improving cell function of the mitochondria, of the peroxisome, of the nucleus, of the cell itself and redox. Again, to make those cells more functionable, because remember, what's a, a cell such as an immune cell, such as a comfort cell, which is in the liver is so important, right? In its phagocytosis of these toxins, it's why every cell has to be at its optimal. So it gets to be pretty, I think it gets to be pretty significant. And and so what are the real toxins out there? The real toxins are, right? Sugar, alcohol, um, too much fat, right? And overindulgence, that's what leads to what? Liver disease, fatty liver disease. And then we have an issue of where we can't filtrate those toxins. So the real issue comes down to stopping this non-alcoholic fatty liver problem, which is becoming a real problem here in the in the United States. So, you know, that's what I have to say to that. and And I think we just have to be careful about all these fasting and juicing and these these diets of just fruits and vegetables and and so forth and these enemas and all these things that just are all they're doing is disrupting electrolyte imbalances and mineral deficiencies and causing diarrhea and all and and even making people tired but they think it's doing something because they feel worse afterwards and they feel like something's happened and then they get better after that well Yeah, they get better because the body's responded, adapted, but you went through hell for no reason. And I just think people really, it's our job to under, you know, to give people a true understanding of what, how does the body handle toxins? And, and gosh, that could be a great, we should do a podcast on that, actually a full-time one to really go into that in depth, because I think people would love it, um,
0: Toxins are huge, and and it goes in from everywhere, right? That like the quote said from the skin. I didn't realize that the skin. Well, is we, haven't,
1: we haven't talked about we yeah. haven't talked about the lymph system, lymphatics, right. lymphatics, intestines. I mean, sweating. Right? It's like, come on. It, it, this is all. There's been an industry built around this that I think is is just unfortunately hasn't lived up to what all the claims have been. And I think that's, I think it's people just have to ask the right questions, Mm -hmm. but you know, how many times Karen have we heard, and I don't want to discredit this, how people feel better when they've done certain, what they call these detox programs. And, and I'm not going to try to convince them that there's metabolically you did nothing. You didn't improve your cell redox. You didn't do anything, but Yet they've said how they've gotten better. They've come to us because they're still sick. Right. And so it's all about just an education, I think, over time to give people a better understanding of what is real, what are the real concepts of what we're trying to do and realizing that once you get into that non-alcoholic fatty liver problem, then it becomes more difficult to handle toxins and in a lot of this, you know, we won't get into it now, but that's where the focus is: is trying to reverse some of those changes, uh, and that's a whole nother discussion. So,
0: I love that doc. <laughs> I haven't done anything to achieve cellular redox by doing these juice cleanses and these broths, <laughs> this it's is
1: just—it's to- just total bullshit
0: we need to know this doc like we just don't have enough people with the expertise to say this is bs this is good this is bad like it's it, it that is why we have your brain doc
1: well i think that i think gosh if we just looked at
0: yeah,
1: yeah it, it, the the liver is i think the liver the liver and kidney you know, the heart has been the big topic, right? Cardiovascular disease and so forth. The next bigger ones are now becoming liver kidney issues because we're people are living longer. We're seeing more issues with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. That's causing more problems with toxins because we're not filtrating them. So it is important to understand, you know, the, the phases of detoxification, you know, with the, adding oxygen to form a reactive site on the toxic compound and then it then you can conjugate it and that's how we remove it so i think we should spend the time on this to really inform people that the benefits of these detox products and claims that offer reducing inflammation or improving digestion or energy or or boosting immune systems. Remember, we don't boost immune systems. We modulate immune systems. But all those statements, I think we have to better clarify for people. I'm not here to say, hey, this is not have a potential in maybe making, giving the cell a potential one- I guess what am I trying to say? It's a multimodality approach in in how you go about this type of stuff. And I I just think people are not well-informed and they just put up with a lot of stuff. And, you know, all I can say is it's, it always has to come back to the science and what are we doing in the cell and show us what we're, what are we doing to improve oxidative function of the cell? And actually the proton motive forces of the mitochondria to improve or maintain ATP and NAD and to keep that really what it comes down to, those ratios of NAD over NADH and NADP over NADPH and ATP over ADP. I mean, those are the real keys to cellular, to redox, cellular health. And then, because when all that goes wrong, we start losing the functionality of the cells. We lose that ability to add oxygen. We lose that ability of conjugation. We lose the ability of the of the immune cells to do their job in the, for instance, in the, um, in the liver. So, yeah, I I've got a lot to say about that.
0: That was fantastic, Doc. The thermodynamic nucleotide cofactors. Yeah. Favorite.
1: Nice. Way to, pull that one. <laughs> Way to pull that one out of, right?
0: Remember that one from our very first episode, Doc? Oh, um, my goodness. Well, 2023 starting off with a bang. We hope that all of your health goals this year are in full swing. Next episode, you heard it from Doc, we're talking about detox, we're getting into it, we're talking about the conjugation of all these things that I didn't realize happened in cellular mechanisms, I thought it was just an English uh, mechanism, (laughs) English language mechanism, but anyway, here we go, Doc. Thank you so much for this, for debunking and for confirming and for just giving us more more of a, a, a world view on some of these aspects of health that keep us going. Um, yeah, and and I think the biggest thing is the uh, cortisol not so bad, especially in the morning.
1: Well what I, what I do like about people talking about this is that people then have the ability, you know they they're starting to look into how can I make myself healthier? So I love that. And I love, I just don't think there's enough out there to help people really sift through the bullshit. And I'm just hoping that we're opening people's eyes so they look more into this and they get more well-informed and then ask those questions. And I'm not keeping people away from fruit and vegetable diets and herbal teas and enemas and things that that have a place. But if we're truly talking about, you know, detoxification, we're not using the words correctly and and, Mm -hmm. and removing toxins from the body. Okay. That's it. You're not going to do it with a supplement. You're not going to do it with a fruit or vegetable, and you're not going to do it with an enema and you're not going to do it with an herb and you're not going to do it with just fasting. You have to approach this through many many avenues of exercise nutrition and understanding cell signaling and and what we can do to improve it so that's how i look at it
0: well put doc well put uh it goes much beyond that well folks let's all thank our kidneys and our livers and all the things that keep us going especially our brains and we will see you next time for another episode of the side of the Medicine podcast thank you so much doc
1: you bad. Thanks, Karen.